0: and welcome back to the growth hacking podcast i'm your host Nemo, and also co-founder of new republic i am joined with two heavyweights titans of our industry (laughs) my co-founder stacy hello hello and the and the by the end of this, the Lord of Shopeo, <laughs> the Lord of Digital at Shopeo, Mital uh from Shopeo. you want to say hi? <laughs> um, hi everyone, glad to be joining you today, Nima. Thank you, mate. Well, thanks for coming on board. So um, you'll probably figure out everybody through the conversation. Um, Mitt and I've been working together for the last six months, right? Seven months. And, um, yeah. and Mitt's got this wonderful role at Chapeau, which we'll kind of leave him to do. But uh, I'm super excited to have him on board because the credentials of this guy is like what every resume would want to be because like this guy ran uh, the digital component of Marks and Spencer's, ASOS, William Hill. So all those people who go, what's ASOS do? We should do that. Well, here's the guy who did it. So you could <laughs> get it from the horse's mouth. So Mitt, thanks for coming on board. I thought maybe a good way to start this is just do a bit of an intro into yourself, like the journey you've taken. You're obviously English, you've got an accent and you didn't leave for COVID, which thank you for staying. Um, so, you know, give us a
1: little intro about yourself and how you came to be in Australia and on this podcast. So I um, I essentially started my career at Marks & Spencers on, on, on a grad scheme actually. I spent about five years there before I decided actually I fancy a change I've done various roles at Marks & Spencers, and still wasn't quite sure what I wanted to go into. And I'd had a taste of product towards the end of my career at at M&S. And this role at ASOS came up and I was like, hold on, like ASOS was just going through hyper growth. And I was like, this is something I want to be a part of. I ended up at ASOS, um, which was an interesting move. (laughs) Why? Why was the, it so interesting? The, the average age at ASOS is, was about 27. Um, and so it was like going back to uni. Um, every little small win was celebrated. Like it was like going out all the time. Um, <laughs> kind of similar to what I've kind of experienced again at Shopo, but like at a much larger scale. Um, yeah. And everyone's young going out, but also getting shit done. Yeah. Um, So that was an amazing three and a half years at ASOS and I learned so much. I think one of the things that really stood out for me from ASOS, which I've kind of taken to all my roles going forward, has has really been the fail fast, learn fast ethos. Yeah. Um, And I try and instill that in in all the teams that I work with now. Um, So I think that's one key thing that really stands out from ASOS. But why I'm in Australia, um, I didn't want to leave ASOS. It was a great place to work. So hold on, is
0: ASOS, this is ASOS in the UK, right? So you've Marks and Spencer's UK, ASOS UK. Is that when you departed and came to Australia?
1: Yeah, yeah. So me and my partner at the time decided, let's just get away from London. Like we we've got so much family in the UK. And so like literally every week there is an event to go to. And we're like, do you know what we just want to get away from everyone and just be the two of us? Yeah. Uh, And then we we decided let's quit our jobs and make the move um and so 27 year old that's exactly what a 27 <laughs> year old would do so irresponsible um I, I was just slightly older than 27 so I was a little bit wiser um, um but yeah we, we made the we made the jump and um yeah five years on i'm still here we actually broke up a, a year into australia yeah no she, she, she's back home i'm here I've, um i'm in my third role in australia i started off i spent two years at william hill what was that like? Cause William Hill,
0: I mean, you know, of course they, they acquired Tom Waterhouse's business. Yeah. And I, I know the guys and, and like, they definitely weren't an, weren't an ASOS. What was it like going from like an ASOS style, like, you know, everything gets shit done,
1: celebrate everything to a William Hill. Was that a bit of an adjustment for you? It, I'll tell you what was the adjustment. So I'd spent best part of eight years in retail and largely dominated by a uh, the female population and so like going to William Hill where everyone was just male that was an adjustment in itself but in terms of changing industry I I really wanted to just move out of retail and do something different. William Hill was actually fun. Um, I love my sports so I was surrounded by sports and I was able to work on products and features that kind of changed somewhat the way digital betting was happening. Yeah, um, And so I, I I really did enjoy my time at William Hill. It was different. Yeah. There were some adjustments. But I think on the whole, I I came out of that a stronger product leader than, than I would have done had I gone into retail again. So, so what what made you change? You've gone from betting on odds to
0: selling fashion again. I mean, it'd be good if you can give, you know, most people know Shopeo. Um, yeah. But I'd love if you could do a little bit of an intro. And like, what was the adjustment? How did you go from William Hill to Shopeo?
1: So William Hill got, got taken over by Crown Bet and um, I was actually contracting at the time. And so what they did was they, they got rid of all the contractors. And so I had to find something else. Um, and then I, I actually thought to myself, what is it that really keeps me going and what makes me tick? And that was going back to retail. And all of a sudden the, this opportunity popped up and uh, a very close friend of mine who I worked with at ASOS, uh, she was actually working there so we both made the move about about the same time five years ago and, and so she was working at Shopo and she's like Mick we don't have any anyone leading product um, what do you reckon would you want to come in and have a chat with Jane and so from one conversation to another I, I was offered a position at Shopo uh, and back into online retail and fashion I think that's probably my sweet spot.
0: Yeah, right.
2: And for those of that don't know, I mean, what does a product manager
0: do? And oh, that's a really good
1: question. I was actually <laughs> going to get there, so thanks. Um, uh, do you know what? I get asked this all the time, and I still think to this day, my mom and dad don't know what I do. <laughs> um, uh, as much as I'll explain it, it it's just telling someone else, It's uh, I'm not quite sure what Mittel does. Where do I actually start? It, do you know what? the quickest way to answer this is to say, what does a product manager not do? Um, but that's not going to give you guys what you're, what you're asking for. So I think for me, if I had, so the way I explain this to new starters at Shopeo during induction, um, I usually have a diagram in front of me. And so it's, it, it's basically a Venn diagram. So you've got the business as one circle technology as a second circle. And then we've got user experience. So the product manager is, and, and what they do is, is they sit in that sweet spot between those three elements and. That role, basically, it really does change organization to organization and how their product function is set up. So there isn't really a straightforward answer. The fundamentals of the roles and responsibilities usually remain the same, but the prominence that role actually plays in a a, a business really goes down to that individual. Was that a big shift when you went to Shopo?
0: Because you were the first one, so I'm sure you're kind of educating them at the same time as... You know, putting into place those things that you need to do to do your role. Was that a bit was that a big
1: shift for you? To some extent, yes. I've always joined businesses that have had product functions. And so for me, like I think the exciting thing here was I was able to take all of my learnings and experiences and then literally put them into a blueprint and, and, and run with that at pop And because they hadn't had that role or function within the business like the benefits and and the value that the role and function brings was clear as daylight, like within the first four to six weeks, they were like, wow, like where have you been all this time? But really and truly, I think Shopo did amazingly well for six or seven years to get how far they have. I think it was the right time to really push on that digital experience and have someone look after and prioritise the right things working at the right time.
0: Yeah.
2: And what were the things that you had to create? You know, was it about off you know, the digital transformation? Was it about experimentation or what, what did they not have that maybe an ASOS had?
1: I think one of the really pleasing things was they had an experimentation program. And so Hayley, um, who was in my team, uh, who's a product experience manager, she ran this program of work. Um, so that was really pleasing to see that they had this showpo is, is, is very, data-driven uh, and, and so experimentation was already part of their culture and, and Haley kind of ran with this program. So that was really good to see. So that, that's something that was just, I just took under my wing and let Haley run. I think the biggest thing for me was organizing all of the developers, all of what was in the backlog um, and really just kind of put in structure, process and governance around how product was delivered. Um, across our website and our apps. Literally the first three, six months was really just setting up the discipline within the business, ensuring everyone understands what role we play, how they interact with us and how we kind of interact with them to deliver um, business outcomes.
0: Let's loop it back into what we do in in experimentation. You know, I, I know ASOS like Nike is always used as an example for retailers is ASOS really as good as everyone thinks it is? Like, is it really the flagship experience everyone should be copying? (laughs) Um, Because everyone, if you open any organisation, there's crappy size and there's good size. Like, is it really as good
1: as everyone makes out? I I think I'm slightly biased here. Um, One, because I've worked there and and, and two, because I shop there. I I think the way I look at this now is when I compare Showpo to our competitors, I, I think we're kind of, a little bit ahead of the curve in in terms of the digital transformation. But then there's the ASOS and the Iconic who are probably like the two big players that everyone else looks at. Mm. They have the budgets, they have the teams to run experimentation at velocity. And especially at ASOS, everything is tested. And so sometimes when we look at ASOS, we think and we take and we try and learn and pick up bits that they're doing because we know they've tried and tested them. What we don't know is how that's going to work with our audience because it's slightly different. So, no, I, I, I think ASOS is, is the dog's bollocks. Um, <laughs> you yeah, so
0: biased, yeah. man. If you said anything, we would be like, oh, well, he didn't do a good job there. So-
1: <laughs> I think especially when I was there, it was really pushing boundaries in terms of how customers shop online and just things like editorial content. So that was, I think that's kind of a given across most retail websites now. ASOS was one of the first ones there. It was one of my first projects that I delivered uh, back in 2013.
0: Hold on, don't move on from that. What do you mean by that editorial content? Open that up. What does that mean?
1: So this is delivering. So we we set up a a whole function at ASOS to deliver fashion, celeb tips and tricks. Yeah. um, Basically just editorial content like a a fashion feed. And the, the aim of that really was to get customers not only to come onto our site to shop, but then to come to our site for inspiration. And so hopefully when they come for inspiration, then they shop again.
0: Again, yeah.
1: Um, And you're starting to see most online retailers are now starting to have some sort of blog element to there.
0: Or integrating the blog into the actual site experience itself. We're doing a lot more tests that way right now. So Yeah. yeah, I see that, I see that for sure. So listen, man, like, you know, Shopeo was an e-com business and still is an e-com business, right? And as you're finding more and more companies now mobilizing, like, you know, Maya's e-com business is pretty amazing. Like, what's that done for you guys? And like, how are you pivoting to stay fresh
1: and relevant? Shopo started, what, maybe 11 years ago. And of those 11 years, seven years we've, we've been pure play online retailers. What really hit the heights for us was being an early adopter in the social and content marketing space. Mm. Jane absolutely killed that. And it it has taken us to where we are today, but then every other retailer followed suit. So everyone's caught up, everyone's playing on this kind of level playing field. What really kind of what I want to do and what I'm trying to do now is is how do we separate ourselves from the rest? Um, And I, I think I've spoken to you about this before, but there's kind of the three tiers of this pyramid that i work with and right at the bottom we've got nail the basics so when a customer comes onto our site are we giving them the most basic e commerce experience they expect and so for me that has to be paramount like you have to nail that there's no point doing amazing cool innovative things if you can't get the basics right and and then taking it to a second level is how do you delight customers with that experience so you take the basics and then an element of delighting in there so like selecting a size um, on a product yeah that's easy to do how do you then uh, elevate that experience so adding fit calculator to it potentially and then that third right at the top is is how do you lead right what sets you apart completely from your, your competition so a couple of things that we've done recently is um so we launched uh, ios widgets So you get freshness coming through on a little widget on your iPhone uh, every day. And like, I think we were one of the first online retailers in Australia, definitely to do this. I think Mr. Porter in the UK got there before us, but it's right. How do we lead through innovation? Like that kind of pyramid is is what I really push with everything we do. Um, And that pyramid will align to our our business goals and, and, and strategy. So yeah, the Myers and, and Co. have an excellent experience, but we're also kind of always looking over our shoulders.
0: I could see that Venn diagram now where you sit, like I can I heard business in that, I heard tech in that. Yeah. And then I heard the the um the customer experience in that. Like I, I could see how just that idea of that new piece of tech kind of fits inside and where product sits inside that. Yeah.
2: And in terms of experimentation you mentioned before that you know they, they you were already doing it at Shopo, but also asos is kind of like the gold star but you know a lot of it came down to resources and money you know how did you initiate that or, or kind of scale that within showpo if you didn't have the same sort of resource pool or the budgets
1: it's a very good question so we, we so we, we've had the experimentation in the two years that i've been there and i think maybe about this time last year, I felt like it's something we'd just been running with, and it wasn't really a core part of our our, our business. And, and so I I had a chat with Hayley, who runs the program, and I was like, what can we do to kind of reinvigorate this program? Um, And so we'd, we'd actually been running this program with a third party. So although we ran the program in house, there's a third party that was building and executing the tests. So, I was like, why are we getting this third party to do it? I don't think they're great. Why don't we bring this in house uh, and upskill our teams and developers on, on experimentation and, and running and executing tests? And so it was kind of really simple. I, I, I kind of looked at various uh, consultants, one, because I don't think we had the right skill set in house. To to run this program. So I really wanted to get everyone in-house upskilled. Uh, and two, um, I don't think we had a strategy and a roadmap in place or, or even had to pull together a CRO strategy or roadmap to kind of execute on. So I really wanted someone to come in and help us do that. And, um, and so for me, it was, it was, it was sort of an easy sell um, to get the money and funding to get that piece of work off the ground because where we're taking money away from this third party doing this for us, I was investing it in you guys and, and upscaling our teams to pick up that piece of work and program in house. Sorry
0: to interrupt you, I gotta say you guys were one of the fastest that I've ever seen be able to pick up the, the program. Like most companies, it takes a lot longer and you guys in six months nailed it. So I was super impressed with your team.
1: I think, I think what was really helpful there is I think we had the foundations. Yeah. Myself, Hayley, um, we, we'd done experimentation in the past uh, at ASOS, so we knew how to do things, but probably not the best way. And I think that's where you guys came in and have really helped us push boundaries and, and upscale us.
0: Yeah. So listen, I know I've got another question to ask you that I sent you a while ago, but I'm going to deviate because that's what I do well. There's something that's just niggling at me, right? You, you talked about at the top of that pyramid was innovation, and I love that. I think that's so true. You've got to be ahead of the curve. So, in an organisation like yours, right, where you where you've got a guy like you who's worked at some of you know like the gold standard, say ASOS. You've worked at some big brands like Marks and William Hill. You know, you you've managed these teams. You know how to do the cross section of business and product and experience why would someone like you want an experimentation program you're already ahead of the curve you're already doing stuff no one else thinks of you're already designing the best in class experience why why experimentation well like what from a product manager's perspective what gap does it fill that you're not already doing
1: experimentation is there because you want to prove something right or wrong right so yeah we're going to innovate but how do we know what we've innovated is is the right solution i think with experimentation you're you're getting your qual data right you're designing experiences but you want to kind of justify that qual and opinion with quant data and you're only going to do that through experimentation and and um i want to make sure what we're putting out there is 100 percent the right thing so
0: are you using it more to validate a design decision or are you using it more as a as a way of thinking of the next product experience like it from a product because you know there's server-side testing there's browser-based testing like in your mind and you know talking to some other product managers out there where where should they be comp- putting experimentation from a product management perspective is it that listen you're going to be making some design decisions to validate it or is it like hey you know just take the risk out of your development cycles by knowing what you implement works. Like where does it fit for you?
1: I, I think it's a bit of both for me, really. Yeah. With experimentation, you're, it, it really fuels learning, right? And if you're using that learning the right way, it's one, you're gonna validate design decisions, but also you're gonna validate new things that potentially you might wanna experiment or work on.
0: Yeah, yeah, makes sense, makes sense. So I'm going to go back to my question now. So you know, um, there's all these stats that are coming out around how Australia's like over-indexing in e-commerce. I I'd love the you-
2: highest level of e-commerce growth in the world in 2020. Correct. Okay, let's not show That's off. Amazing. People, let's not show off. <laughs> That's We're, pretty good. Though. It means
0: we all have too much money. Stop buying property and making expensive <laughs> people. So, it, like, just from someone who's lived in this space for a long time, and you said 2013, which makes you technically a dinosaur. So you're very old. <laughs>
1: Just want to put
0: that out there. So, just from that perspective, um, why why do you think Australia's e ecom growth is so big? Like, what makes us so different to the rest of the world?
1: I think it's probably because we've been so behind for so so long. You, you you'll notice, I think Australia over the last maybe two three years, the, the number of tech startups that have have gone global, I think, has been I think the highest it's ever been. Like. Australia is really thriving in the digital space, but taking it back to e-commerce, I think the in the last 12 months, it's probably in line with the expectations, right? That come out with having gone through a pandemic and also the, the closure and movement of bricks and mortar operations to online. So that's yeah. kind of almost expected to some extent. And I think if you look at, maybe if we, if we measured the, the year of New York growth, growth, um, I think the pandemic has actually contributed to an unprecedented amount of that growth, but I don't think all Australian businesses have been that lucky. Like if you show paper, uh, as an example, I think 90% of what we sell is, is going at fashion, something that everyone's stopped doing. And, um, that largely, honestly, like it has such a negative impact on, on us. And we had to find ways to pivot the business at a drop of a hat. Uh, and and, we had to do that to survive. So I wouldn't say everyone has been as lucky through the pandemic, um, but I think it's definitely played a part in, in, in those numbers. Mm. But also to add to that, I think um, as we move out of the pandemic locally and then start like honestly going, going about our daily lives again, I expect that that potential over to normalize, especially given that the US and UK as examples, were far ahead of that curve, and they're also now starting to come out of that pandemic. So it will be interesting to see what happens in in, in the coming six to twelve months.
2: Mm, I think a lot of people are accustomed now to to doing things online, mm. and a, a lot more than they were before. You know, it's I a pressure
0: think. cooker. Like everyone was like not doing it not doing then they're forced to do it
2: they're forced to do it and i know for us you know there's a huge amount of businesses now who are doing that digital transformation as we talked about you know pre covid and so that's really like it's it's been super busy and i think a lot of people are more accustomed and also on the back end i think a lot of people are optimizing their websites now so the customer journey is a lot more you know efficient and people are getting what they want from online so they're they're more you know happy to to move to an online model and and do a lot of their shopping online whether that is, e- is e-commerce fashion or food or kids wear or whatever it is um everyone's kind of jumping online now
1: i think the i think i read a stat last week i think there was something about 91 percent of customers that hadn't shopped online shopped online at least once over the pandemic yeah that's huge um
0: but did they shop at Chopin? Mean, <laughs>
1: that's the question. <laughs> but do that, I think. you wrong, To that, I think also, um, Britain water businesses are on the rise again. Um, yeah. uh, like so many empty properties in, in Bondi are, are now being like starting to open again, whether it's small retail boutiques or, or cafes. So it'll be interesting to see if, if we maintain or that kind of large stack maintains itself or whether it starts plateauing because of that
2: well I think it changed habits though right so I think that's what we were all questioning whether people would want that touch and feel and that you know face to face again or whether people would go back to the bricks and mortar or whether people would stay with the online but I, I really think that you know because the um, pandemic went for such a long time it really fundamentally changed people's habits and once those habits would change I, I, I can't see it going back so I think that there will be a desire for people to be face to face and you know have that kind of tactile and yeah. experience but I, at the same time I think that there will be a huge you know move towards more online shopping mm, totally right I don't think it's one or the other anymore
0: yeah yeah I, mean, I want to go. I wanna go back to when we were talking about the experimentation program and, and how you see it fitting in. Um, tell me around, you know, you, you said you had a program before and, you know, as a product manager, you want to build on, on that based on what you said around how it fits into your overarching uh, roadmap. Yeah. How you, you had a team established, we worked together around reorging the structure when you built out the team structure, like what was going through your head? How did you see this team coming together and how did you actually see them
1: delivering back to the, the, the bigger products, uh, strategy that you had? For me, this, the, the, in terms of the setup, what I really wanted to do, like, I mean, we, we're investing in, in New Republic, we're investing in a new optimization platform. I really wanted to make sure we got the best out of that investment. And so the kind of premise I put forward uh, internally within the business and my team um, was that we were gonna move to dedicating at least 25% of our development backlog to experimentation. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, we'd moved away from using uh, a third party to manage, manage that to internally. So I wanted to make sure we spent the time kind of delivering the experiments and also not just delivering the experiments, but kind of instilling that experimentation, experimentation culture throughout the development team. I wanted to make sure they understood why we're doing this. And it kind of, kind of also brings in to ideation when we work with developers, when we're trying to fix problems is right guys think from an experimentation perspective, don't just think of a solution. How many different ways can we approach this and can we test it? to see which one has the best outcome. But they're also starting to do this. And and that's kind of one of the goals of of bringing this program in-house. We didn't want to kind of upskill a third party and their their developers. We wanted to bring that kind of skill in-house. Yep. And
0: what what made you decide, like, you know, you were in-house, right? You were running a different tech. You you had teams running it inside, but the dev being outsourced for you and other people that work out there like what's at what point do you think in housing makes sense versus outsourcing like how do you how do you differentiate and then you made that decision of i'm going to go outside get some knowledge and come bring it back inside like how did you make that that transitional decision if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah for me from a financial standpoint i think it made total sense um we're moving budget from from one pot to another pot. That's essentially achieving the same outcome. Um, So so that was a really straightforward decision. Um, But I think when you train people up internally, it's you're you're kind of pushing their their learning curve. Uh, Again, you're reinvigorating them. You're kind of bringing them back and and motivating them. So that's what I really wanted to do Um, because when you find people that kind of plateau when they're learning in an organization that's when they want to leave so partially for me it was about maintaining and keeping the really good guys that we have by training them up on something new new technology new process um and a new way of thinking really yeah
2: and just following on to that because i I know that there's a lot of people out there who look at look at outsourcing, you know, to like a company like ours or other consultants or, or you know, doing it, bring it in house. Like what do you, for people who don't know, and you've obviously tried both, where do you think the advantages and disadvantages are of doing things internal and outsourcing?
1: We work quite with quite a few external um, organizations and like, to, to be honest, external teams are really extensions of internal teams. So for, it's really about filling those skill gaps in an organization that exists that will stop the business from achieving its goals. And, and so that's why people bring in external resources. The reason why we engage you guys, um, like I mentioned before, we had an optimization program, but it wasn't set in the world. And it had become somewhat stale. And so what I really wanted was for you guys to come in. I mean, you, like, consultants are expensive, full stop, right? But they are that for a reason. They're bringing in uh, the wealth of knowledge and experience in a particular area that you're looking for. Um, And and so that's why they're expensive. That's why people bring them in. Whether you continue running with consultants or whether you bring it in-house is is really down to individual budgets. Um, I'd love to keep on um, and and you guys on for for much longer. But I, I don't have the budgets to do that. I'd like to think it's value. It's good value. The consults are good value, everybody. That's what he means. (laughs) Um, And and so for me, it was right. Learn as much as possible from these guys because these guys are great at what they do. They work with so many organizations um, and they have have skills and experience to kind of bring, I I, I guess, a team that hasn't got that experience up a level. And and that's what you guys have done. Yeah, makes
2: Mm. sense.
0: So let's um, we're getting close to the hour. So let's 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 do a little bit of um, crystal ball gazing, the future. I mean, you got you you know you work at ASOS, you built the future. You're now in Australia and working with shopo a, a kind of a digital leader in the space. So if you had to predict the future and also the lotto numbers that are coming up, <laughs> what what would the future be, and what are those lotto
1: numbers? Right, a lot of numbers. I'll give you those first because <laughs> <laughs> um, no. um, I think the, the future uh, for looking at the next next 12 months, what I really want to do is kick on from this amazing foundation that we've laid over the last five, six months mm. um, and really build up the capability in-house. So that experimentation is more than just that 10 to 15% of our backlog, but maybe 25 to 30%. So, I think that's super important. I really want to make sure we take the opinion out of what we do and base decisions largely on what has worked or failed through experimentation. Yeah. Um, I think if we continue to do that over the next six to 12, six to 12 months um, and thereafter as well, I think the experiences we deliver for our customers will really help drive growth. What about,
0: what about personalization, man? Where do you see the, like, I you hear this word so much, right? And where yeah. do you see it fitting into, like, into your broader vision? Is it something that's kind of still a discussion point or is it something that's real and commercial for you?
1: Um, it, it, it's, it's definitely real. There's conversations ongoing at the moment. And I think through experimentation uh, over the next few months, I want to start building that personalization strategy. Uh, I mean, there are elements of personalization on our, on our website and apps, but I think we're on the surface at the moment.
0: Yeah, and you guys, are, what, are you, you're, what are you using for a personalization? Was it was it Salesforce or you using
1: something else? Um, so at the moment, where the personalization elements on the website come through our e-commerce platform, which is got Salesforce. Got it, got it, got it.
2: And what do you think your three top tips would be, you know, to e-commerce brands who want to speed up their digital transformation? Ooh. Here
0: we go.
2: Well, I think you've done it. You've been in it. And I think there's a lot of businesses out there who, you know, they, they hear about this term, you know, digital transformation. That's post-COVID. There's a lot to be done. You know, you've got experience. in it. Where do you, where do you what focus? Your, What's the top three yeah, things? If you had three top yeah. tips you could give someone, what would it be? Good
1: question. Uh, three right you
0: do two or two, two, two <laughs> I, amazing bangers was just one one incredible thing to do um, you I can't actually, say hi me I've seen the future but you can't say that
1: either. I was actually on a on a panel a few weeks ago with you Nemo and I think this question this question came up then as well <laughs> um yeah and and um, I, I'll probably just repeat what I said then um so I think it's really about... S- starting with defining what a digital transformation means in your organization um, and what you want to achieve from it because I I find that like especially in my uh, younger years in my uh, early my career when I used to think digital transformation I think like wow that's some gigantic piece of work like I would not know where to start and so I think define what it means for your business and the outcomes you want to achieve. Um, So those outcomes, I think, will obviously be based on your business uh, strategic direction. So that's also still massive and gigantic. Break it down. That's the most important thing. Break it down and be able to showcase how each building block or each step solves a business outcome um, or helps you achieve that strategic direction. So I think yeah, I think those are probably the bits. So define what digital transformation means for your organization and break it down. Showcase how each building block or step solves a business or, or, or a customer problem in achieving that strategic direction. I think if you've done that, the the ultimate thing is stakeholder buy-in, right? Because without stakeholder buy-in, you're not going through that transformation program. So, Get those building blocks in place, communicate that, get stakeholder buy-in, and uh, you're on your way. But is it ever that simple?
2: No, <laughs> but it's a good start, and I think half the time it's actually defining, you know, the steps, which a lot of people, I think, struggle with. I think with, defining
0: so. the word what it means for you is the mm. big one because everyone says it but it doesn't mean anything.
2: Well, I think, I think, as you said, a lot of people think of it as a huge, you know, monstrous piece of work. And I think, as you said, understanding what it means to your business and breaking it down into small components is good advice.
0: Agreed. Last question, man. You ready for it? If I want to be you, what do I need to do? How do I get your job?
1: There's this cloning technology that I've heard of.
0: No, honestly like if someone if someone wants to move into a kind of the job that we'll you're doing he's sort we'll of role, get into that kind of role what do you do like what's the way what's the way to get into that
1: i think um really if, if you're already in a product role i think you have to continue evolving i think the product role is, is ever-changing and it's ever-changing because it has different meanings in different organizations but i think it's what's really good is join product forums learn as much as you can evolve as much as you can just don't stop learning and um i think as cliche as it sounds and this is probably something that i've followed and it's probably got me where i am today is you've got to create the opportunities um, rather than wait for them to come to you yeah almost like you yourself are the product that you are product managing go and find the opportunities um, rather than let them come to you.
0: What, what background, if someone comes from a specific background, would you think they're more, they're better at being a product manager? Like, let's say, you know, you got me who comes from an experimentation background. Would that be a better fit for a product manager? Or is it someone who comes from a dev background? Or it doesn't really matter?
1: I don't think it really matters. I think if you've got, you can get product managers that have come out of, business roles because they're subject matter experts and then they learn to become product owners or product managers or you go kind of the route that I've gone uh, and I I started off in um, business analysis um, and then moved on to product ownership product management and and then where I am today so I've kind of taken the the natural career growth path in, in, in getting here but I definitely think if you're in a business role you and you've got subject matter expertise, you, you can definitely move into product roles and, and, and grow and learn.
0: So, mate, mate, look, that's the hour. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing you know, your world, what you've done and, and your journey with us. I greatly appreciate it. Just from myself and Stacey, I just want to say thanks, mate. Thanks for your time.
1: No, thanks for having me, guys.
2: Great to chat. Thank you.
0: So another episode, we had Mid on the, the world of e-commerce, the lord of the future. Um, <laughs> if you want to get into product management, just listen to the wise words of the sage, uh, Mitt Lacani. Uh With that, I want to say thank you for joining us on the Digital Growth Hacking Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new one. My name is Nima, co-founder of New Republic. Thanks for joining. Stacey, you want to say a sign-off maybe?
2: See you later, guys. See you at the next one.